And uh, you can take your Bibles and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And uh, I've entitled this, this message, Paying What You Owe. Now, I understand as we look around um, the world today, we all see um, some similar things. Inflation is on the rise. Spending is over the top, probably by us as individuals, for sure by our government. The cost of gas and food and everything else is ridiculous. None of us want to talk about debt, amen? But that's exactly what Paul talks about here. Paul wants us to focus on this idea of debt. And I know that even saying that word, many of you are sinking under a weight of debt. You owe money, you have bills to pay, and it stresses you out. You feel the pressures of this every single day of your life. And while I don't want to add stress to you, I do want to talk about the debt that you owe, the debt that I owe. And it's the the most important debt that you are called to pay as a Christian. We all have this same debt, and we're all called to pay it. Paul's overall emphasis in this section of Scripture in chapter 12, really all the way through the end, but particularly to this point in the text, is to call us to live our lives as living sacrifices. That's the way he's framed the Christian life in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But the dominant word in in this chapter and in the previous chapter, really this entire section is framed by this word, is the word love. Paul began in Romans 12, 9, calling us to let our love be genuine. The text here today picks up this theme of love. And, And the reason is really important is because love is supposed to be the defining characteristic of the Christian life. So, Paul has been going to great pains to teach us what it looks like to love in all different contexts. He wants this love to be manifested in every relationship we have, in every sphere of life we find ourselves, and so he's talked to us about what it means to to love in the context of the community of faith. How do we as brothers and sisters in Christ love one another? He's talked to us about how to love our enemies. Those, those who are against us, who oppress us, who treat us with hostility. He's told us how love is supposed to be manifested towards the governing authorities. Just, just previous to this in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, and now more broadly, he wants us to see how, how love is to be manifested in every relationship with, with every single person we come across in this life. Now, in Romans 13... He reminds us, he did this in the previous section, that we are actually dual citizens. We are citizens of this earthly country in one sense, but we are also citizens of an eternal heavenly country. We hold dual citizenship. And those who belong to the heavenly kingdom don't just have a responsibility to pay what we owe to the earthly authorities. We also have an overriding authority or responsibility to pay what we owe to our heavenly authority. 
We just sang about it. Jesus is Lord of all. He is King of kings. We are a part of His kingdom, citizens of that heavenly kingdom, and we have a responsibility to pay to our King what He says we owe. And this entire section, like I said, is driven by by this understanding of love. Look at what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 13. Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This fits right in to what Jesus Christ Himself said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, speaking to His disciples before He was going to go to the cross and be crucified. He said to them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you now must love one another. By this, all the world will know that you are My disciples, that you love one another. Make no mistake about it, love is the overriding characteristic of the Christian life. The question that we come to in this passage is, how should that look on a regular basis in my life? We have this great responsibility, church. The legacy of the church should be a legacy of love. And Paul says that we ought to think of it as if it's this great debt. So he calls us here to pay what we owe. So I want to ask simply four questions to help us pay what we owe, to help us do this properly. Here's the first question. What exactly do we owe? Paul's already introduced this concept of debt in the last section. If you were here when we went through Romans uh, 13, 1 through 7, you'll remember the way he ended that passage. But just look back really quickly at verse 7. He's talking about, remember, our responsibilities to the earthly authorities, to the governing authorities. And here's how he frames this. He says in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Then he extrapolates upon this. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then he leaps right out of that concept of owing these debts, and he broadens it to the Christian life and to all of our relationships, and he simply says this, owe no one anything except to love one another. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, it's it's really important to understand this, that This is not saying, contrary to what some people believe, that it is wrong or sinful to borrow money. In fact, the Word of God has a lot to say about how we are to lend to those in need, and it even provides parameters for what that should look like. This is not saying we cannot borrow money. It's not saying it's wrong to actually, in that sense, owe somebody money. So here is what he is saying in this context that if you did borrow, then you have an obligation to pay back what you owe. You make an agreement when you borrow something, and so therefore you ought to be faithful to that agreement to pay back what you owe. So so just practically speaking, if you still have some of your neighbor's tools in your garage, okay, you follow me here? Not cool. Or, or, Or your neighbor's corningware, 
Some of you are saying, thank you. Somebody's finally addressing this from a pulpit. <laughs> or your pastor's books. Not cool. Pay back what you owe. Pay what you owe. The way you agreed to. Now, listen, I get when, when we start talking about paying what we owe, we all, most of us, most of us understand what it, what it feels like to be in some kind of debt. We get that there's this weight, this pressure involved in being in debt. And it, and it feels incredible, doesn't it, to not owe anybody anything. It, it's an awesome feeling when you've paid off all of your debts, when you're debt-free. But here, just notice this, Paul tells us that there is a debt that we can never escape There is a sense in which, as a Christian, you are never debt-free. The creditor is going to keep on calling. He's going to keep on knocking at your door, notice after notice, to make sure you understand that debt is never paid. What is the debt? He tells us here so clearly, doesn't he? The debt is love. It is love for each other. There will never, think about what this means for you as a Christian, there will never be a day when you can kind of, you know, tear, tear up a piece of paper and say, there you go, in, in your relationship, I'm debt free, I owe you nothing. Kids, I've loved you perfectly. Spouse, I've loved you perfectly. We're done. I've fulfilled my obligation. That day is never coming. So husbands, here's what that means. The next time your wife says to you, don't you love me, honey? You can't simply look at her and say, well, I married you, didn't I? As if that's sufficient. It's a great start, but but that's not the way it's supposed to continue. Love is supposed to be ongoing. By the way, if you do say that to your spouse, you might not be married for very long. You see, in this context, the debt is interestingly not owed to God. Did you follow that? Who's the debt owed to? Do you see it there? It's owed to others really fascinating. We would expect that this debt is to be owed to God, but God tells us through His Spirit and through the pen of the Apostle Paul that this debt is actually owed to other people, human beings. And by the way, that, that, that means not just in the church, not just people outside the church, not just people you like, people you don't like, people who are your enemies. He tells us twice here Notice, who are we supposed to love? Love your neighbors. Love your neighbors. So the natural question then is this, well, who exactly is that? Who, who is my neighbor? And here's the simple answer. The simple answer is any human being you come across while you live life on this earth. That person is your neighbor. Any human being you come across while you live life on this earth. Anybody you have anything to do with at any point in this earthly existence is your neighbor. What's really interesting is that this question was actually asked to Jesus himself in the gospel accounts. Luke actually talks about this in Luke chapter 10. It's the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with it. And, and so this, this lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he first, he's trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus and really test him. And so he first comes up to Jesus, and he asks him this question. He says this, what is written, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the first question he asks. And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responds back to Jesus, 
And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds to this lawyer and he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then Luke goes on to say this, and this man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus goes on to tell him this this story, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among robbers, they stripped him, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. Can you imagine the scene? This, This man, half dead, at the side of the road, and in the ancient world, this is devastating news. By chance, a priest who was going down that road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, you would expect, well, certainly a priest godly, righteous, would would seek to help this poor, half-dead individual. No. A Levite comes along, another person you would expect, for sure, this is the guy who's going to help out this poor, half-dead man at the side of the road. No, not so. But there's this other man who comes along. He's a a Samaritan. Now, you have to understand that there's, there's a little bit of cheekiness meant in this parable. A Samaritan was despised by the Jews. They, didn't, they, were, they were like half-Jewish. They were half-breeds. They didn't embrace the entirety of the Old Testament. They were ostracized and villainized by the Jews. And so the hero of this story, being a Samaritan, is kind of like a shock to the system to any Jew who's hearing it. But here he is. This Samaritan comes along, and what does this Samaritan do? He pulls over. He helps this man. He tends to his wounds. He cares for him. He puts him on his own donkey, and he brings him to the hospital, so to speak, where he actually pays this man's medical bills, making sure that he's going to not only live, but be perfectly fine. Jesus, in this brilliant way, turns this around on this lawyer, and he asks him, who, who is the neighbor? Do you hear what he's doing there? The man's forced to say, well, obviously the Samaritan is the neighbor, but don't miss what Jesus does here. He turns the tables on him, and what he essentially says to him is, don't worry so much about who your neighbor is. Make sure you are the person being the good neighbor. Any person you come across is your neighbor. The real question being addressed here is, will you be the kind of neighbor that Jesus wants you to be? What exactly do we owe our neighbors? Love. Love is what we owe our neighbors. Here's the second question. How do we pay what we owe? How do we pay what we owe? Let me frame it another way. What is the acceptable method of payment? How do we demonstrate love to all with whom, with whom we come into contact. The reason this is such an important question is because our world is very ambiguous when it comes to love. You know, we hear it all the time. Love is like a trite expression, almost cliche. It's kind of just tossed out there willy-nilly, and it really doesn't mean much when you think about it from a worldly perspective. Just peace and love, brah. Or is it bro? I don't know what it's supposed to be now. This is peace and love. Just, I love you, man. Or, or, you know, according to John Lennon and the Beatles, that, that was a band for some of you back in the 60s, a little young. You know, all we need is love. I call this bumper sticker Christianity. Just, just throwing it out there, you know, love, just love. Everybody just needs to love. Like, what does that mean? 
It's so ambiguous, it's so fuzzy, it lacks any kind of definition, and there's a reason for that. The world operates by a human-centered, ambiguous understanding of love. You see, the whole point of love being ambiguous is it can then mean anything to anyone. It can be self-defined. I determine what love is for me. This is the whole movement of love is love. This is is the whole agenda of the world right now. But you see, the Bible operates by a God-centered, specific understanding of love. What's fascinating about this is that the Bible assumes that we need instruction on what it means to love. And God defines the method of payment. God, God essentially is saying this, listen, take the worldly currency of love that maybe you've embraced and cash it in for the universal divine currency of God. God's got this figured out, and here's why, church, here's why. Because God is love, okay? He is the one who is king of the universe. He is by definition love. Therefore, He's the one who gets to say as to what love is. Amen? Amen. He determines it. The world doesn't determine it. You don't determine it. God determines it. And so, we need to hear what He has to say about love. Romans 13, 8 through 10 has a sandwich structure to it, okay? This is important. Just uh, literarily, I want you to see this. So, just look down at verse 8 and verse 10. Maybe you picked up on this. This is, this is a, a, a literary tool that Paul uses to help us see what he wants us to really focus on. Notice that the verse 8 says that um, love is, uh, to love another has to fulfill the law. Notice verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. There's the bread, Okay? It's the bread. Now, the meat is what's in the middle. He's going to explain, in other words, what that love is supposed to look like. He's organized the text this way so it's very clear. And look what he does in verse 9. He quotes five laws, four from Exodus, one from Leviticus. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he adds this, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he goes to the law, the Ten Commandments, so to speak. Now, just maybe this may be helpful. The Ten Commandments are, are broken down into what theologians call the, the two tables of the law. The, the first table are the vertical commands. They, they are commands that deal with the, the vertical relationship between humanity and God. And so it starts off, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols and so on and so forth. The second table of the law is an extension of that, but it is the horizontal expression of that love towards our fellow man. And so, what Paul is telling us here is that the law explains how believers love one another. So, why the law, though? Why the law? That's a good question. Here's a quote from Martin Luther that I think is really helpful. We'll throw it up on the screen. He says this. He says, just as the lofty song of Solomon has been called the song above all songs, so should the Ten Commandments be called a teaching above all teachings. From then, we know the will of God what God commands of us, and our shortcomings. Do you see what he's drawing attention to here? 
This is what Paul is doing. He's saying there's an objective standard of love, and it's found in God's eternal law that is based on God's own character. You see, the Ten Commandments, those laws existed long before Moses wrote them down in the, the, you know, the Torah. They're an eternal law. These are things that are embedded in the fabric of humanity. Yes, Moses codified them, He wrote them down, and so it became very clear and obvious that these were things that reflected the very character and nature of God. But these things are an expression of God's own character, and they help us understand, therefore, what it means to love. You see, in any given situation, here's Paul's point, we are to do what God would do. And by the way, loved ones, love is in the details. And we understand this. It's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. And part of this, again, is because love, in our culture especially, is often very hard to define. Again, the world wants to define this for you. That's why, listen, Paul has framed all of this from Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are called to be discerning, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, we have to rip out of our minds the worldly understandings and definitions of love. We, we need to refine our own understanding by the Word of God. The world right now says that love equals acceptance. Love equals affirmation. Love equals approval of a lifestyle, of decisions, of behaviors. Again, I said this, this is love is love. This is, this is again, the, the LGBTQ plus agenda right now. This is the world we're living in. It's everywhere you go. You cannot escape it, church. And if, and if you think you can, you're kidding yourselves. This is coming for you. It's coming for your kids. It's coming for the church. So you have to understand what's taking place here, and you have to define things properly. The world says this, if you love me, you will actively affirm and support every and any decision I make. But this is so ambiguous, it's so arbitrary, and it makes you the authority. The Scriptures instead provide a clearer and better definition of love. God defines what it truly means and looks like to love humanity. And what He does is He says love has parameters. It has boundaries. It's not ambiguous. It's actually very specific. And and he uses the law to show us that. I like what John Stott says. Again, I'll throw the quote up on the screen for you. He says this. He says, love and law are not mutually exclusive. You can't think of law over here and love over there. Love is greater and drives the fulfillment of the law, but law shows the boundaries of love. For example, love will not do what is forbidden. Okay? This is what the Ten Commandments teach us. That's why they're framed in a thou shalt not language, because there are certain things that love simply will not do. You see, what's the purpose in, in saying that, in forbidding certain things? Well, there are certain things that do damage to humanity, right? Certain things that harm other people. And look, he lists them right here. We don't even have to be fuzzy about this. You shall not commit adultery. Listen, adultery devastates lives. It destroys the people who commit adultery. It destroys the families who suffer because of the consequences of adultery. It rips apart the fabric, listen, the fabric of humanity that is intended to be built upon the nuclear family. 
I mean, murder? Is that unclear to anybody? This is just like taking a life, killing somebody, stealing, taking somebody else's possessions or money, things that they have earned and things that are rightfully theirs. It destroys people's lives. And then he ends, interestingly, isn't this interesting? Um, you shall not covet. I think that's really interesting because everything else is very obvious, isn't it? Like the other ones you, you can see, they're visible, but covetousness is something in the heart. It's very subtle. It's often hidden. To covet is the very attitude of our hearts. Coveting is the, the tenth commandment. And ultimately, coveting is wanting something that God hasn't given me, and it's essentially breaking the first commandment. It's putting another God before Him. That's why Paul says in Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. We want something that God has not given us, and we're willing to make a God out of it. We bow down at the altar of whatever it is we want, a relationship, a thing, a possession. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power or position. Martin Luther said that we never break any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first. Which is why when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, do you remember what He said? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But notice this, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, if you love God above all things, and you love others well, you will never willingly do what you know will bring harm and destruction towards that person. That's, that's the gist of the commands. But you see, but love does not just stop at what's forbidden. It goes beyond that. See, some of us, we only define love by what we don't do, right? I could have hit you, but I didn't. See how much I love you? I could have I said some really mean things to you, but I didn't. See, I really love you. But I want you to see what Paul says. This, this statement here and any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, what he's doing is he's moving from the passive and the things that are forbidden into the active and the things that we must now pursue. And it's fascinating how he does this. It's so helpful. He says that we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. In other words, Christian love is not simply about what you refuse to do. It is also about what you choose to do. Love of neighbor is ultimately, consider this, love of neighbor is ultimately an expression of love of God and love of self. Now, I, I want to make a very important qualification here. This, this statement doesn't command a self-love, especially not as the world defines it. This is not talking about self-esteem. This is not talking about pumping your own tire and feeling good about yourself. 
This is not a command to self-love. This actually assumes a self-love, okay? The Bible's not telling you you got to love yourself. The Bible assumes you already do. That you choose to treat yourself a particular way. You choose to treat yourself with a certain kind of dignity, of respect and care. And it's almost automatic. You don't even have to think about it because it's so ingrained in who you are, in the fabric of your DNA. You just instinctively care for yourself, don't you? I mean, you avoid pain if you possibly can. You feed yourself every single day, I'm assuming. Some of us more than others. You clothe yourself. You bathe yourself, Lord willing. You do all the necessary things in order to properly love yourself. That's what he's talking about. By the way, Paul uses this same kind of picture for husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes on to say, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. And Paul's just, he's doing the same thing there that he's doing here. He's saying, don't, don't you see, this is how you ought to treat other people. This is how you ought to love other people, right? Just consider that framework. Anything you do to properly care for yourself, nourish yourself, show value and dignity to yourself, that now becomes the parameters through which you should view how you ought to love other people. You know you need food. Guess what you should be thinking towards other people? They need food too. Maybe I should feed those who are hungry. I need clothes. And guess what? There are people out there who don't have clothes. Guess what I should be wanting to do? I should be wanting to love and help them and meet those needs. This is what James talks about as pure religion, true religion. It helps the orphans and the widows. Faith without works is dead. Our love is active, and it is proactive, and that's helpful because unlike the way we often care for ourselves, our own bodies, this kind of love towards others is not often automatic. There's no automatic withdrawal on this account where you have to just simply sit back and it just happens. You have to actively think about it. You have to plan for it. You have to proactively seek to pay this debt of love every time. The question is this, how do you know, this is a good one for us, church, how do you know you actually have a vertical love for God? You know what Paul's saying right here? One key way is through your horizontal love for others. It's a barometer, it's a test. If you love God, you will love what pleases Him, and what pleases Him is how you treat other people in accordance with His Word. It is not, in other words, your declaration of love that matters most, but your display of love that matters most. Thirdly, let's ask this question, where do we find the means to pay what we owe? It's interesting here, he sums this all up. In verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love sums up the commands because love does no harm to its neighbor. It seeks its his good, flourishing. It is the essence of love to seek and to serve our neighbor's highest good. That is why love is the fulfillment of the law. 
But we need to wrestle with this question, what, what does He mean by fulfill the law? He's already taught us that, that the law cannot be perfectly obeyed, that we cannot possibly fill the law on our own. We need to actually read Paul's statement about having fulfilled the law against the backdrop of Romans chapter 7. If you weren't with us in Romans chapter 7 and you got questions about the, the believer's relationship to the law, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. But there, Paul made it very clear, he argued that we are actually incapable of fulfilling the law by ourselves. Why? Because of our, our depravity, our sin nature. So the law comes along and, and, and tells us to do these things. It's interesting that Paul says when the law told him what covetousness was, he thought he was pretty good. Then the law said, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden Paul says, all I did was covet. I, I saw covetousness all over the place. The law exposes our hearts. It reveals our utter inability to keep the commands of God perfectly, to earn our own righteous standing before Him. The point that Paul is making there is that we are all sinners by nature, and we fail at fulfilling the law. This may be very important for some of you to understand today. The law cannot be used to make somebody right with God. The, the law can never make you right with God. Your, your own obedience your own morality, even trying to obey the Scriptures as best as you possibly can, that cannot actually make you right with God. It cannot erase your sin. It cannot undo your sin. It cannot put you in a place that makes you pleasing to God. All the law can do is reveal your utter inability to be pleasing to God. The reason we didn't follow these laws and we break these laws is because we actually didn't have love. We didn't have love. No love from God and no love for God. The law simply shows us our guilt before God. It shows us that we do not naturally have what God requires. This is the weakness of the law. Law cannot, excuse me, love cannot be legislated. So, it's not as simple as saying, well, if you love people, just obey the law. Paul is actually inferring that something else is required. He's actually speaking to us as if we already understand this and have embraced this reality that we can do nothing apart from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You see, law is proposition. Love is a disposition. So, the obedience to the law actually has to flow out of a heart that has the love of God already in it. Law is the boundaries for love or the rules of love, but not the fulfillment of love. Let me say it as simply as I can. We need love in order to love. This is precisely why God sent His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you see that? We love, listen, because He first loved us. You, you can't fulfill these commands the way God desires without first knowing the love of God in the gospel of Christ Jesus. God in the gospel, listen, He sends His own Son to fulfill the law perfectly on our behalf. 
The law that condemns us, the law that reminds us of our own inability, the law that points to our separation between us and God. God says, let me come and fulfill what you cannot. And by the way, the Old Testament is really a story about God's people failing to obey God, failing to obey the law, their inability to do so, and therefore their deservedness of judgment and wrath from God. It's the story of the Bible. We can't earn our way into God's good graces. But in the midst of, of that story, what God had promised is remarkable. God promised that He would make a new covenant with His people, that He would give to His people a new heart, that God would atone for our sin. He would absorb the debt of sin, and through this new covenant, with these new hearts, listen, He would remove this heart of stone, He would replace it with a heart of flesh. And only then would we be able to keep His law of love, the law of Christ. You see, love Himself had to come down. Jesus Christ, He had to fulfill the law. He had to be nailed to a cross. He had to rise from the grave. And to those who believe, He gives us now this new heart that knows the love of God and can love others now like God. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Do you remember? He said this, he said, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Look at this, through the Holy Spirit has been, who has been given to us. The law points us to Christ and it's telling us that we need a Savior and we need a new heart and only these things can only be fulfilled or found in Jesus Christ. Some of you, this is so important because you're trying so hard to obey. You're trying so hard to simply you know, get away from your past and the mess you've made, the damage you've done, the shame and guilt you feel on a day-to-day -day basis because you walked in sin and in deep sin. And so you think that if I could just be a better person, if I could just be more moral, if I could do more good things, maybe then, maybe then God will overlook all of my sin, and instead He'll say, okay, now you're good enough. The massive problem with that is that God is not looking for good people. He is looking for new people. He has to make you new. He has to be the one who pays that debt. You need a new heart with new power, new abilities, new affections, and that's why Paul can command this, that we love our neighbor as ourself, that love is now the fulfillment of the law. You see, what you desperately need is your bankrupt, overdrawn account that is incurring exponentially more debt every single day. You need that account joined with Jesus' account, an account that is filled with eternal righteousness. You can't keep the law without having love. But once you have the love of God in Christ Jesus, you can actually love others like Christ, for He is in you. You are no longer under the law, but are able to fulfill the law. Let's ask one final question. Why must we pay what we owe? Why must we pay what we owe? How did we get into debt in the first place? I want to remind you of what Paul says 
at the very beginning of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, listen to what he says. He talks about this debt. He says this, I am under obligation. That's debt language. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You see, he sees his own obligation, his own debt, and he sees the way that it's paid is outward toward other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that he is a debtor. He, he was indebted to the people he preached to. He felt that burden, that pressure, that responsibility every single day. He says this earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, we have received. You want to know why he felt like this and why you ought to feel like this? Here's why. Because we, like Paul, have received grace. We haven't received apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. We've, we've received grace, loved ones. That's why we must pay what we owe. We've received grace. We were once walking in, in sin and, and alienated from the life of God, but God being rich in mercy, listen, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is a gift. It's a gift we did not deserve and we could not earn. Therefore, listen, listen, this is so important. Therefore, we are in debt to everyone else around us. This is staggering. If you're a Christian today, you have received grace upon grace. Amen? That means you owe the world a debt of love. This is the motivation to keep loving. Even those that are hard to love, even those who have hurt us, it's God's way of keeping us focused on the mission. We often talk about the gospel like this. We see that Jesus paid a debt He did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. We cannot keep the law. We cannot erase our transgressions. We cannot cancel out our certificate of debt. But God took that certificate of debt and He nailed it to the cross. And He did it out of love. Jesus paid a debt of sin that He did not owe because we owed a debt of sin we could not pay. Let me say it like this. Listen. Death is the debt. Grace is the payment, and Jesus wrote the check. And because of that, we have all in Christ Jesus incurred a never-ending debt of love. And can I just say that paying this debt is not a burden. Like, listen, when you pay your other bills, it can be burdensome, right? But, but some of you know this experientially. You know what it's like to pay? You know the freedom of paying off a credit card? Paying off a car loan? Some of you, by the grace of God, know what it's like to pay off a mortgage. Some of us will never experience that. I mean, there's just a wonderful joy in that, isn't there? 
There's a freedom that we get to experience in paying off these debts. But can you hear this today? The joy you get from paying off your physical debts cannot be compared with the joy you get from offering the freedom of the gospel to those who are buried under the weight of eternal debt and sin. You can't compare. All we can do is take what has been so graciously gifted to us and offer it freely to others. It's been rightly said that we are just beggars joyfully telling other beggars where to come and find bread. And, and loved ones, listen, we must tell them. That's what the Bible's telling us. We must tell them. We actually owe it to them. We owe it to them, and we must, by the grace of God, pay what we owe. 